All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, look, I've talked uh, on TYT a hundred times about police training. So what we thought we'd do is we'd bring on an expert about police training and talk with them. Um, both about how they're doing it in a new way, but also uh, I'm curious what the old way was. So Mustafa Tamiz is Democratic strategist, former consultant the Department of Homeland Security. He was the director of US State Department's Countering Violent Extremism Exchange and Program. And he has trained over 2000 police officers in Texas on the implicit bias program. Mustafa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, No problem. So um, I, I've got a lot of questions for you uh, in a short period of time. And, and I'm curious, we might even disagree in some portions here. So let's see what happens. So uh, number one, you teach folks, uh, the, the police officers in this case, empathy. And you try to teach the community to empathize with the police as well. Um, that led me, Mustafa, to ask the question of, Wait, are they not taught empathy normally in police training? Well, you know, in all trainings, we have the habit of talking at people rather than talking with people. And we find that if you're trying to talk about something like implicit bias, rather than telling people, hey, you're biased or you're not biased. It's better to try to create scenarios in real life type of scenarios and put people in, but put them in the shoe of someone else so they can see things from a different perspective. Because the idea is if people can understand and walk in each other's shoes, they're likely to have a better understanding and we're likely to get better outcomes. Well, okay, so I agree with that and I love what you're doing in terms of training on empathy, making them feel like they're the shoes on the other foot. I mean, I talk about that on the show all the time, not just the case of police, but when we're talking about political issues between Democrats and Republicans. Okay, if it's a story about Trump, imagine if it was about Biden and vice versa, right? And so don't get me wrong, I love the program. But but I, I do wanna ask again though, in a normal training program across the country when police are getting trained wherever it might be, Rhode Island, Alabama, it doesn't matter. Do they get taught to feel empathy for the community? Because it doesn't seem like they do, that's why it seems like they need the program that you're giving. Well, a lot of times what happens is police officers are teaching the program to each other. So a lot of the mandatory training that occurs in police departments, it is about de-escalation. It's about how to use their weapon. It's about taking command and control of a situation. And 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 most of it comes like any law enforcement, military type organization. It comes from that frame, like protecting yourself and taking command. When we talk about implicit bias, it's a different type of a topic and therefore it requires a different type of an approach. And so bringing people in from the outside into the law enforcement world and, and having them facilitate conversation amongst law enforcement officers about issues that you know are sensitive to you know American dinner tables now as much as they are within the law enforcement community are really critical and really important. And, and, the, and the best way to do it, as I said just a minute ago, and as you as you're talking about it, we have to stop talking at people, but really started talking with people and with each other. So Mustafa, what you're doing is again, really important. And I want people to understand what implicit bias is. So a law enforcement officer like any other American, unfortunately, might have subconscious bias and often does, we almost all do. And so they, on general and on average, think that African Americans are older than they are. And it's very relevant for African American kids who are treated as adults. They think that they're bigger they are than they are, they're stronger than they are. And that leads to maybe using force 
too many times and in the wrong situations. So that's very important. But Mustafa, that's not the only issue, right? So well, you mentioned it right there. They're usually taught command and control and their safety is paramount. We, as you were saying that, we were showing pictures of cops who we've gotten used to it, but honestly, they look like stormtroopers. And and so I, I'm curious about that portion of the training. Because to me, and we just did a story earlier in the program about this, where a poor kid was shot by officers, white kid in Utah, but he touched the gun of the officers and so they shot him in the head, right? And so it seems to me that the training is don't ever take any, any risk with your life or your well being, just shoot him, kill him, be done with it. Well, look, I think that these are complicated issues. And, you know, I live in Harris County here, and it's one of the largest, third largest county in the country. We have 78 different police agencies just within this one county. So there are thousands of police agencies. Every school district's got a police force, every municipality's got a police force, every county has multiple different types of police agencies within it. So, so we are, you know, we're in a society that has different policings that have different governing rules. And sometimes we mix them all up into one. The challenge of our time is we spend an inordinate amount of money in healthcare, but we don't get as good outcomes. We spend an inordinate amount of money in policing. If you look at municipal budgets, two thirds of it is in public safety. But we're not getting the outcomes that we want. So, so what do you do, right? You can't walk away from it. Uh, you can't say we don't need police. Uh, we can't say that uh, you know the police officers don't serve a very important role in our society. So, how do we, you know, build a path where, as a society, we get the outcomes that we want, safer communities, and uh, you know, law enforcement officers also feel like that the communities with them. So this is through dialogue with each other. And so I know some of this stuff sounds like, you know, can we all get along? Can we hold hands? But in reality, we are basically, you know, choosing sides. It's law enforcement or the community. And when and that's not how life works, right? There yeah. are challenges. We didn't get here overnight, and we're not going to fix them overnight. Well, I hear you, Masova. We of course we need police. We understand that. everybody gets that, right? Um, but um, but an empathy is real. What you're teaching is really great, and it's really important. You also talk about mental health, and you teach them like, hey, people might have mental health issues. It, it scares the hell out of me that 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 is unusual that that's taught, um, and that seems to be the case. I think most officers are just taught command and control, um, and so and then you ask us the, the community to have empathy for the police. Well, on that. It's it's a mixed bag, right? So I do I have empathy for them in this sense that there is that there's guns everywhere. Everybody's got a gun, so their life is in a sense is always in danger because of that. Is that true? Yes, right. And and you know you've got drugs, you've got crime, and these are dangerous situations. All that is true, right? On the other hand, no, I don't have a lot of empathy for them because they're taught take those dangerous situations. And just kill people. Don't ever take any risk. If you take any risk, and you know what the saying is, Mustafa, better to be judged by 12 than carried out by six. So that is not right. That is not right. They're terrorizing the communities because they're being incredibly selfish. So I'm having trouble empathizing with them. Well, well, I think you're hitting. I think you're hitting an important point, right? It, it, is that uh, we have to change culture. 
right? This is not just about a simple change of something small. We have to change the cultures in, in police departments and, and, and we have to change cultures in our communities, how we see police. And so that type of reform is not just a, a, you know cutting at the margins. There's some transformative things that have to occur in the coming decades. So yes, changes, reform has to happen. One training program, not gonna solve everything. Do we need to take a look at how we deploy police? Yes. But I'll give you something very simple that we do in our training. You know, the generation that's growing up today, the younger generation, you know, they're native to these films, right? So every time you have a question, you can ask a question, and you know, the 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 generation that that's growing up now, they're used to engaging with people and asking questions. If you grew up in my generation or even earlier ones, you saw police officers, you didn't ask any questions. So. It's not just about diversity, but you know how different generations respond to just a simple matter of asking questions. And that has to be talked about amongst people and professionals. And police officers are professionals, so as you were saying, they have a higher burden. They have the responsibility to be trained. So understanding that you know people that are native to technology are gonna ask questions because they say, hey, Google. To every single thing, and so when you're in a command and control environment, and you want to take control of a situation, and somebody asks you a question, you know, an older person would just be chilled, as they say, right? Mm-hmm. But a younger person might want to ask questions, but them asking questions doesn't mean that they're pushing back. And these are types of discussions that we try to facilitate amongst police officers themselves, rather than just talk at them or just give them a PowerPoint. But these type of facilitated discussions help change the culture in the locker room, in a squad car, when police officers are deployed and working together. Yeah, Musaba, look, but you know, again, your program is great and it's definitely heading in the right direction. But I gotta say, even in your description, I think the core of the culture of policing in this country is just terrible. Because like the younger generations ask questions. Well, they got a right to ask questions. That's a constitutional right. We in the older generations, we had a right too. But we're just so terrorized by the cops that we knew that if you ask a cop a question, he could bust you over the head. Well, that's that's a terrible culture, terrible. And it's been here for decade after decade. And yes, they do it more to minorities, but 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 they also do it to white people, they do it to everybody because they're taught command and control. Not every situation is a kumbaya moment. I get it, cops have some, sometimes are in dangerous situations and they have to give clear orders and they don't have time to have a discussion. I understand that, we all understand that we're adults, right? But at the same time, we know it, Utah, we just did another story where Utah passed a law saying that if you insult the police officers, they can arrest you on hate crime and, and terrorizing police. And one 19 year old girl got arrested for smirking, for smirking at a police officer. So. So look, Mustafa, how in the world do we do mass retraining of our police on a, on a completely different level where we t- tell them, no, not every situation is command and control. Yes, people are allowed to ask you questions. And no, you, are, you must take some degree of risk. You're a police officer, you have a gun, you have a badge, you have the force of law. You must take some risk. You cannot shoot the minute you think there's a slight danger. How do we do that on a mass scale? 
Well, look, look. I think that the, the George George Floyd Act um, that Congresswoman Bass um, and Cory Booker, Senator Booker, and others are, are are working on is really the beginning of those type of conversation. Where you need national legislation that creates some guardrails that says. If you do this, there's severe consequences, right? You've got to, you've got to have that because that's how we operate in our society. That's how police operate, right? Like there's certain rules. You don't follow the rules, you go to jail. That has to, that has to take place, and so that's an important element of that. Then, you know, if you're going to change cultures in large organizations, whether they're schools, whether they're police departments, that there's an element of training. It doesn't solve everything, but there's an element of training. And then, lastly, I'll say it's it's a leadership. I think we need a change in leadership, and that and and that next generation of police leaders are going to have to insist on it and begin to demand that change, and that. You know that just doesn't come from Washington or your state capital or or the or, or the mayor's office in your town. It comes from all of us, and 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 the kinds of questions that you're asking, the kinds of questions that people are asking on the streets, the protests that that have brought us here. Uh, you know, those are the critical changes that that drive society to do better. And police officers are professionals. They should be held to a higher standard. I think police officers will agree with that. At the same time, I would always say that you know we as a community have some responsibility because we didn't get here just by the police. We have brought ourselves here because there's this sense of security over everything else. And that has to change amongst our communities as well. Okay, Mustafa Tamim is doing great work in this field. We appreciate you joining us. And I got a lot out of the conversation, but I'll end on this. I think that it, but that you also have to do it at the top. And the President of the United States and other leaders have to say, we have to stop shooting people. You've got to take a little bit more risk. You do, yes, yes. We're asking you to do a tough job and that involves risk. And But we cannot have you shooting at first sight. And so until you start changing that in a cultural way, you really are not ever going to get to the right results. So. Uh, again, thank you, Mustafa, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, back on the conversation. Well, conversations with Republicans are oftentimes interesting. We're going to have another one of those here. Um, Jamil Jaffer is going to join us again. He was on the program before, it was spirited. Uh, he's the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute. He's the former chief counsel and senior advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the Republicans. And he was the former associate counsel to President George W. Bush. Uh, so, Jamil, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Cenk. No problem. So, uh, we had a story come out this week about from the Guardian about leaked documents from the Kremlin saying that they thought that Donald Trump was mentally unstable and that he would be helpful in destabilizing the country. The document called him impulsive, mentally unstable and an unbalanced individual who suffers from an inferiority complex, which sounds spot on. It gives me a little bit more respect for Russian intelligence. Okay, services. So Jamil, first question is, do you believe it? Do you believe the story? So Jake, you came in and out there. I think you said, do I believe the story? Yeah. Look, I think that it's hard to know, right? I mean, this is an interesting timing of the leak. The document certainly captures elements of Donald Trump that I think that are gonna be hard to argue with. 
But it is interesting they came out, you know, now, like, why is this document coming out now? We've seen the Russians engaged in all sorts of disinformation. It wouldn't surprise me, frankly, Jenk, if this were another, you know, document from the Russians intentionally designed to misinform or disinform the American public. But you know, elements of it read like you know, like they're an accurate assessment of the president. Yeah, well, it's it's refreshing to hear you say that, and and it certainly does. And and unfortunately, if the document is correct, or even if it isn't correct. Um, it, it meaning like it isn't an actual document that it is somehow it's a trick, right? Uh, it does accurately yeah. describe what happened, uh, not just in regards to Trump, but they say Trump when could, or they say quote will definitely lead to a destabilization of the U.S.'s socio-political system, and we've had destabilization, that's for sure. Uh, and so I'm curious, as a Republican who worked in the Bush administration, are you concerned about um, documents like this that seem to indicate? Uh, that the Russians wanted to destabilize us and that they were actively working yeah, inside the country to foment a division between the left and the right. Yeah, Jake, absolutely. I mean, we've known this isn't the first document or, or evidence or suggestion that the Russians were acting to destabilize our country and destabilize our body politic. Uh, you know, we have an entire Senate Intelligence Committee report, bipartisan report uh, by, by Senator Richard Burr, Mark Warner. Uh, Democrat, Repu- Republican, and Democrat, respectively, uh, that makes clear that the Russians were involved in the 2016 elections. They were actively engaged. They intentionally decided to engage in activities, stoking multiple sides of the debate, intentionally to to create dissension, disagreement, and discord in the United States. And they were wildly successful, Jenk. I actually think that if, when we look back on this covert operation uh, that the Russians ran, this will be the most successful covert influence operation in the history of the world. I actually agree with that. So look, I wanna be clear, I've said this a 100 times on the show, but these documents also do not indicate that Trump ever coordinated with the Russians. It was just the Russians trying to use Trump to destabilize America. So we have to be fair on all counts. But it is also refreshing to hear a Republican say things that are obviously true to the rest of us, right? And so, and in terms of the destabilizing, it's, it's, they, they also talked, Jamil, about media viruses, that they could plant media viruses and that they could take hold and destabilize us in the long term. And as I see some yeah. in, the, in the extreme right wing and now the extreme left wing uh, constantly support Russia in over the top ways, in, in, in ways that the right wing never did. And and the left wing, I guess, hasn't done since the Soviet Union, right? And they're not communist anymore at all. They're hyper capitalists and oligarchs, etc. I wonder if those media viruses actually took hold. I think there's almost no question. I mean, you see the you know the the intensity with which we've been debating these issues now for the better part of you know going on five six years, and part of that debate is stoked. Yes, in the American media, right? The the on the left and the right. I mean, you know, you've got you've got you know folks at MSNBC, folks at Fox News, who who come at these things from such extreme angles and actually say things like, "Oh, you know, we should really believe be believing the Russians." They stoke you know dis discord in America about our own intelligence agencies, about our government, right? Is our government doing the the right thing, the wrong thing? Look, our government does things wrong a lot of the time, right? It makes mistakes, it makes errors. Sometimes it does things intentionally that are problematic, right? And we need to vet those things out. But the 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 the, the amount of you know vigor in the media that the government's doing the wrong thing, 
that 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 whether it's Democrats on one side or Republicans on the other are out for themselves and not out for the country. Um, and I mean, it, that virus has certainly taken hold. And it's been stoked by the Russians. And increasingly, I think we're seeing increasingly being stoked by the Chinese too in the in light of the COVID virus and since then. Yeah, well, so there I think we've got a little bit of a divergence in our opinion, right? So I think the politicians are out for themselves. I also think the media is out for themselves. And so I think that's that's pretty obvious. On the other hand, there, when I say extreme right and extreme left, I don't even mean Fox News or MSNBC. I don't think, you know, well, certainly MSNBC. If MSNBC is extreme, it's extreme in its neoliberal support of the Democratic Party, no matter what. But but they certainly hate Russia. I mean, I mean, they think everything is Russia's fault. So I think they're extreme in a different direction. But but no, I'm talking about folks who now all of a sudden think Russia can't do anything wrong. Right, and and but then furthermore, say, hey, I want to hold the American government accountable. I'm not sure I want to hold the Russian government accountable. But when I hold the American government accountable, I'm now going to go to an extreme and say that everyone's CIA, everyone is like paid by NATO or with the nefarious forces. That it's not normal corruption. Like, oh, they takes a campaign contribution from ExxonMobil and does what he does, you know, what ExxonMobil wants. No, it's like no, it's the deep state. It's the CIA. It's all these things, right? And the CIA does a lot of terrible things, but this is getting like this conspiratorial view that is to the nth degree seems to have really taken hold. And so that's almost indisputable as you see the, the again, only the extreme right and left wing. But but Jamil, we might actually disagree also on, on what to do about it. So I wanna explore that. Yeah. So given that the, the facts are clear, right? The Russians did try to interfere in the elections. How effective it was, you can disagree about. Was Trump involved? I don't even think you can disagree about it. It doesn't look like Trump was involved. Um, you know, whether they had compromise on Trump is a different issue. Whether they used it while he was president is a different issue. But it looks like during the elections, right. Trump was not involved. Um, but, but. Okay, so what do you do about it? I mean, and here you're, a, you know, old school Republican, and, and so I'm curious. I don't know what you think. Yeah, look, I think I think Jenk, what you do about something like this is you got to punch back, right? You have to extract a cost from the Russians to demonstrate that you can't behave in this way, right? Look, we run intelligence operations in Russia all the time, right? We want to acquire intelligence from them. We want to figure out what their leaders are thinking. And yes, we engage in electronic surveillance of Russian leaders. By the way, if we're not doing that, we should just shut the whole thing down. So if you're an American journalist and you call the office of a Russian leader, Yes, you should expect to be picked up on surveillance, not a view of that Russian leader. That's what intelligence collection is about. Every country does it, that's what they're supposed to do. Now, it gets different when you start interfering in another country's own politics, right? And again, yes, the US government does that. We engage in covert action, that is a thing, right? But you can also expect that when you engage in covert action and it causes problems in the body politic and causes issues, that the other side might extract a cost from you. They might punch back. And that's what we haven't done effectively at all. We know what the Russians did. We know they've been doing it. We know they've been hacking us for years. We know that they're engaged in in permitting these proxy groups to engage in ransomware hacking. We never punch back, Jenk. We don't hit back. We don't extract the cost. And if that happens, you can't really blame them for continuing to push back on us and continue to do these things. They're not paying any price. To the contrary, they're looking even more influential because it's great for them. Oh, the Russians interfered in American elections. They caused dissension. This is a win for them. And we're sitting around doing nothing about it. It's crazy. Well, okay, of course, the question is, how do you punch back? So let me 
I hope get rid of the extremes and then we'll see, we'll probably still disagree on the middle. But so surveillance, should we surveil the Russian government and their intelligence agencies? Of course, that's the whole point of having an intelligence operation, right? So that that we agree on. Right. Now, when it gets to recording calls of Americans, that gets dicier. Tucker Carlson says that his phone or his communication was intercepted because they were surveilling one of the top Russian officials. Uh, you know, I would hope that our media doesn't get dragged into that. So I don't like that uh, his conversation was caught, but I get that they were, of course, surveilling the the Russian official, right? So, right. but right. that's relatively easy. I, can I get you to agree that we should not use military force here? Because that, to me, that's a no-brainer. No way I would use military force. They're a nuclear power, and that's way too extreme, in my opinion. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, Jake, that's a little bit harder one. I think it depends on how far they go, right? If they were, you know, affecting votes in America, right? I mean, at some point you have to say, look, you've crossed a line that requires us to act out militarily. Are they have they crossed that line yet? I don't know. But what I can tell you is they've gone so far that without any penalty. I mean, we've engaged in some sanctions, limited sanctions. You know, the President Trump likes to say he's the toughest president on Russia. Fine, yes, his administration imposed sanctions, right? Great. Hallelujah, right? It obviously didn't work because the Russians are still doing it, right? And Joe Biden is sitting around here saying, well, you know, look, I'm really concerned about this ransomware, right? We're gonna respond in a time and place of our choosing. You know, everybody knows what that means. It means you're not gonna do anything about it, right? It's just like with the bully on the playground, Jenk. And I know we all tell our kids, hey, you know, go call the go call the principal and have a conversation with the parents. But the reality is, you want kids to be not be bullied on a playground, just like you don't want your country to be messed with in international relations. You gotta punch the bully in the face and you gotta do it so everyone sees it. I'm not saying we need military force, but at some point you gotta have that on the table, otherwise you don't have a credible threat. Yeah, this is where we fought last time because you're old school neoconservative. Hell no, no way on military force. No way, no how. That's a super dangerous game to play. And and and, and I, I don't want to get 1% of the way there. Uh, and then sanctions, we, we've run out of time, unfortunately, because this is an interesting conversation. But I, I would not do it on the Russian people. It's it's counter-effective, counterproductive, and it's, in my opinion, immoral. But what I would do is I would freeze the assets of the Russian oligarchs. Because that's actually the one law that in the infamous meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner, that's the one law that they were most concerned about when we froze their assets. And that's the one law they were trying to overturn desperately because it's their assets. They don't give a damn about the Russian people, but they care about their money. So if I could, I would, I would, that is the one way that I would strike back by freezing the assets of the powerful. Uh, people inside the Russian yeah. government and the oligarchs. Do you at least agree with that? 100%, Jank. In fact, you know what we should do is we should go much more aggressive. In fact, when I was working in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, one of the things that we put out was a bill called the Russian Aggression Prevention Act. It was it involved their, their involvement in Ukraine when they went across the border into Crimea. One of the things we said we should sanction is not just the assets of the individuals, but these huge companies they control, Gazprom, right, Rusbank, right, all these massive entities. We can prevent them from doing business here. We can seize their assets, right? That would actually be a huge penalty for these these oligarchs to control its money. We weren't willing to go down that road, you know, VSB Bank, right? There's a whole ton of these organizations. We actually list them out in the legislation. I think that would be a great effort um, if we went after those assets directly. I think that's exactly right. You know, you and I might disagree on on sanctions. I also think we do disagree on military force because I believe you got to keep it on the table to have an effective deterrent. I know we disagree. We're not going to argue. We're not going to we're not going to agree on that one. You know, look, and I do have to say, at some point, 
There are only so many assets you can freeze. We haven't done all of them, so you're right, we can still do more. But at some point you run out of those and then you gotta say, well, what comes next? No, nothing comes next. Uh, no, we're not gonna keep uh, military options with a nuclear power on the table, besides which is immoral. Uh, and so I, yes, we definitely disagree. And I don't want sanctions on the Russian people. They didn't do anything wrong. They were also suffering under Putin and the oligarchs and the, and the authoritarian government. Uh, but but the easiest way to hit uh, anyone is in the pocketbook. And, and don't hit the pocketbook of the Russian people, hit the pocketbook of the Russian oligarchs. Uh, and I would think that almost the whole country could agree to that. But there are media viruses, and so I'm not sure the extreme right or extreme left would even agree to that. They might say, "No, our beloved Ru Russian leaders are always right, and we should you know, should never touch them." Uh, so, but that's up to them. Uh, all right, Jamil, this was a surprisingly um, agreeable conversation, even when we disagreed, which was still significant. Uh, all right, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it.